This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. than vaccination is. In many ways, they operate by the same mechanisms and principles. And it's true, there is something contrived about altering the body's immunity. But there's something contrived about keeping a garden as well. And many of us understand that keeping a garden is a way of of being in communion with nature. It also involves a certain amount of um, manipulation of nature. And I think that that's what's going on when we vaccinate. We're in communion with certain organisms, and we are also manipulating our relationship with those organisms in a way that is ideally beneficial to everyone around us. Is immunity a shared space? Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. On this week's show, German historian and writer Jan Palper from the University of London talks me through his latest big read, The History of Emotions, an introduction. And do we have an obligation to maintain the health of the people all around us? Award-winning American author Eula Biss discusses the debate on immunity, the social barriers around fear, and the urgency that some mothers feel to protect their children. This is a show about myths and vulnerability, paranoia and parenting, and the choices we make around healthcare and our emotions. But first, what is emotion? Who has emotion? And where is emotion? Jan Palper is Professor of History at Goldsmith University of London. He is a co-editor with Benjamin Lazier of Fear Across the Disciplines. And his previous book, The Stalin Cult, A Study in the Alchemy of Power, caused quite a stir. Well, Jan's latest venture, The History of Emotions, is one expansive, stimulating and worthwhile read. This book is very much a thoughtful collaboration between history and neuroscience. In his introduction to The History of Emotions, Jan writes, I have time and again sought to get up off the couch, throw open the windows and reveal a new perspective. A post-therapeutic study of emotion, the study of emotion beyond the dichotomy of universalism and social constructivism. Yep, not an easy task, but I have to say an intriguing one nonetheless. Well, over the weekend, I had a great chat with Jan about the emotional components to everyday thought and action. I first put it to Jan that I was quite surprised that historians would ever question the idea whether emotions had a history or not. Let's take a listen. Well, you know, this is actually a fairly modern idea that emotions do not have a history, that they are universal, that they've always been the same. Uh, In earlier times, there used to be ideas that emotions are, in fact, uh, malleable. So, yes, uh, emotions do have a history. Uh, And actually, historians have known that that emotions have a history. They've tried to tease them out um, for a long time, but for the most part, they've 
merely superimpose the emotions of their own age or the concepts of emotions of their own age upon the past. And what's new about the history of emotions is its point of departure really is that we don't actually know how emotions were configured in the past. Let's look at this again. But surely from Aristotle to Galen to Descartes to Hobbes, the whole lot of them were touching on emotions in some ways, whether it was philosophically based or theologically based. They were all devising ideas or philosophies around emotion, weren't they? So surely that gives us some form of history. Absolutely. Um, The fact that there's been thought about emotions uh, among those philosophers um, whom you just mentioned, and that the thought about emotions, the ways in which they thought about emotions, uh, changed quite a bit, gives us an idea that they are in fact malleable. I mean, take, for example, Aristotelian notion of an emotion both having a negative and a positive dimension. That's very different from the way we look at emotions ever since the rise of experimental psychology, where we have this idea that some emotions, a whole class of emotions, is by and large negative, and another class of emotions is by and large positive. Here you have a serious shift um, in the understanding of emotions. So that is one of the examples of how concepts of emotions has changed across time. Now, Jan, you say that there's no definitive answer as to who has emotion. One of the issues that has preoccupied people who've thought about emotions is who actually is endowed with emotions? Where do we draw the line? Do animals, for example, have emotions? This is a question that's very, very hot at the moment in animal studies and the question of whether animals should be included uh, in a radius of empathy. Because if animals do have emotions, that makes them more worthy of our protection. That means that we need to change all kinds of laws to protect animals in ways similar to the ways in which we protect human beings. Um, So this is a big, big question. Um, And there have been various ways in which this has been dealt with. Think about the ways in which uh, popular culture, movies treat this issue Um, and whether robots, for example, humanoid robots, should be endowed with emotions uh, or not. In fact, this is also a question of practical applications. Engineers are designing one of the key issues in their design of humanoid robots who deal with especially the elderly in aging societies, such as um, Japan, Italy, and so forth, is to make them as emotional as possible so that they can uh, work well with human beings. Now, one of the things that struck me as I was reading through your book is the idea that how we articulate our emotions, because that's quite a problematic area. I know you reference Napoleon and rage and his, you know, and you say that when historians are writing about Napoleon and saying that he was raging this, that and the other, that our understanding of rage has differed to possibly Napoleon's understanding of rage. How do we find universals within all of that? The search for universals is a search that unites scholars from the life sciences. The convention of a humanities discipline such as history is that it places an emphasis on the specific. So for this, the, the whole point of departure for a history of emotions is precisely to ask, well, do we actually know how, what rage meant in Napoleon's time? No, we can't assume that. We need to go back to the sources, contextualize. So we need to find out what scientific theories about rage were around at the time, how we need to find in other sources what was allowed to display in public. Uh, was it considered, for example, 
uh, was it permissible for a man to show rage in public, or was that person then considered less powerful? All these things need to be studied, and then can we only arrive at an understanding of how rage was considered figured in Napoleon's time. And the search for universal for universals is something that is currently at the center of um, scholarly inquiry in other disciplines than history. And within all of that, you know, you can argue that emotions are learned through our cultural groupings. They're learned through the context of our families, our friendships, our relationships to the world. So how can we understand it all? Well, one of the things that we can do as historians is to reconstruct the ways in which emotions uh, are learned. Uh, I mean, the most obvious thing is, for example, if you have, say, advice literature as to how how to display emotions in public or not in public, what's what's allowed, what is considered bad, what needs to be sanctioned, that would be one of the ways. One could also look at um, so-called first-person sources, ego documents, historians call them, so diaries and so on. And you could then compare between the advice literature and these uh, sources. There's a whole host of other fields that usually impact uh, these norms, these emotional norms. One can look at institutions, think about schools, think about armies, think about how soldiers are trained to either uh, show their uh, emotions, for example, to uh, show fear in order to then conquer it, to manage it, or whether any display of fear is considered cowardly and it's supposed to be sanctioned from the very, very beginning. So uh, looking at institutions and at the kinds of texts that institutions produce to socialize, to enculture their people is one of the many pathways to this issue. So, for example, the British show a lot of emotional restraint. Is that what you mean? There are definitely national emotional stereotypes around. Um, Think about German angst, think about Portuguese saudade, and think about the British stiff upper lip. So one could then uh, look at how this emotional stereotype, collective national emotional stereotype of the stiff upper lip of emotional restraint came into being and how it started to exert pressure, how it started to be transferred into real life. Now, I found uh, reading some of the stuff you have in Paul Ekman very, very interesting. It's his theory on basic emotions. Yes, well, one of the most influential theories from experimental psychology since the late 1980s has been by Sylvan Tompkins and then Paul Ekman. There's this idea that there's a set of universal emotions, so-called basic emotions, there's disagreement about the number, and that these emotions are connected to certain muscle movements in the face, certain facial expression, and that this is cross-cultural and trans-historical, so that you can find it in all times and uh, in all cultures. And uh, that they actually, that these uh, expressions of uh, true emotions leak through what uh, Ekman calls display rules. So, you know, that say you're in a certain setting where you're supposed to smile, but you are in fact sad, then the idea, the assumption in the Ekman paradigm is that by looking at certain muscle movements, one is able to detect the true underlying basic emotion of sadness through a mask of uh, smiling. Um, so you could catch somebody out pretty fast, really, couldn't you then? This is a kind of lie detection, a modern kind of lie detection. In fact, a whole uh, series in the United States, Lie to Me, was based precisely on the idea, and Ekman was the consultant for this idea. In the sciences, this is highly disputed nowadays, and most of the 
action has moved behind the face, as it were. Uh, most people now localize, most scientists try to localize emotions in the brain, in certain areas of the brain, um, no longer in the face. And the reasons from within the history of science, people who have pointed to a lot of problems in the experimental uh, designs that underpin this kind of research. But one of the things that struck me, there is an emotional component to everything that we do in life, how we judge, how we evaluate, how we interact. Absolutely. There are different temporalities at work here, so there are uh, more long-term emotions, or we might call them moods, and then there are really these quick kinds of emotions. It's really, we're never not emotional. Recent neuroscientific research confirms this, that there is such a thing as a default mode network, so there's, the brain is never inactive, that it is always on, uh, and that we're constantly emotionally behaving and evaluating and in interaction with the outside world. But Jan, we can change our emotional responses to the outside world and we can work with our emotions on that. Yes, definitely. We can do that. Yes. Well, think about, think about the objects of fear, for example. Uh, they're highly variable historical. So before the First World War, there was an epidemic of uh, fear of being buried alive. And there were all kinds of uh, contraptions. There's particular, particular coffins with uh, tubes and with little bells and so on. And people in their wills um, stipulated that their throats be cut before they get buried and so on. With the beginning of the First World War, 1914, that epidemic was gone. So uh, an object of fear, what are you afraid of? What am I afraid of? Changed rapidly within just a year. That's one example of how historical, historically variable um, these issues are. Do you think yeah, we're seeing a growth in anxiety levels globally? It looks like it. It looks like it, doesn't it? Um, and it's the old um, chicken and egg question. I mean, on the one hand, we have proliferation of diagnostic entities and all the major diagnostic manuals, such as the DSM of the American Psychiatric Associations, which are used internationally on a global scale. And uh, every time a new edition comes up, there's yet more... Uh, and yet more differentiated uh, diagnostic units, um, including uh, those relating to anxiety disorders. And um, so to some extent, these diagnostic entities create the experience of anxiety and anxiety levels. And on the other hand, they're a reflection of what's really out there in society. It's really a a chicken-egg question. It's a two-way process. Reading through your book, it becomes very obvious that when we look at our understanding of the history of emotion, it's all predominantly European and North American. So really, it's tunnel vision. Well, luckily, first of all, luckily we can build on an amazing literature from cultural anthropology that started in the 1970s, early 1970s, uh, about non-European locales that has furnished incredible variety of um, emotional, not only expression, but also experience all over the world. That's one thing that's to be said here. And the other thing that needs to be mentioned is that, in fact, in this fairly new field called history of emotions, which only came into being as a self-described field in the mid-1980s and has only taken off since the 2000s, the uh, non-Western history of emotions is developing at great, great speed. So just recently, I read an article Uh, on the history of emotions about the ways in which uh, in China people are supposed to display emotions at uh, burials, which is highly scripted. And the idea is that the most authentic way of showing your emotions is in fact in being as choreographed and scripted as you can. That's a very different notion of what we're used to. We have this idea in the West um, since uh, at least 
early modernity that um, authentic emotional expression is supposed to be non-scripted, is supposed to be spontaneous and so on. But you could argue that politicians would be very well veered in how to express their emotions and it wouldn't be that uh, spontaneous that they can hammer up at a moment's notice. That's true. I mean, this is one of the things that historians of emotions need to tease out. So if we study politics in the past and the role of emotions in politics, we need to have an idea of whether there was a concept of authenticity, whether that concept was around or not. Um, and, and that then plays a role. Um, then you, you, you know, you, you can, you can invert the rules to a certain extent, that then allows you to be considered authentic in your emotional expression as a politician. But you can't invert them too much, probably, because otherwise you step outside certain boundaries uh, that make you um, impossible as a member of that professional group, whole scale. And final question, Jan. Do you think that the discipline of history is the appropriate place to look at the history of emotions? Do you not think maybe psychoanalysts or neuroscientists will be better at it than historians? Or have I got it all wrong? No, I think that the discipline of history is precisely the right place to look at emotions. I wish that psychoanalysts and especially neuroscientists took the historians of emotions more seriously because they would find astonishing variety across time, data which would lead them to question many of their universalizing assumptions. And in fact, there are many areas in which people from a humanities discipline such as history and people from universalizing disciplines, especially the neurosciences, have started to cooperate. Professor Jan Palper from the University of London. The History of Emotions and Introduction is published by Oxford University Press and retails at about 40 euros in hardback. Now, the title may sound a bit flighty, but rest assured, this is a book for the general reader. Okay, coming up next, is society suffering from a chronic overdose of fear?
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company. Okay, let's move on and move into a very controversial and touchy space community healthcare and the herd immunity myth. Follow the money, a friend of mine said, in defence of the theory that vaccinations is simply a profit-driven scheme controlled by pharmaceutical companies with unchecked influence over government and medicine. The provocative words of Eula Biss from On Immunity and Inoculation, published by Fitzcarraldo Editions. Professor Eula Bliss is an American non-fiction writer and the author of the multi-award winning book Notes from No Man's Land, American Essays. Well, Eula's latest book on immunity and inoculation is a provocative examination of the growing myths on immunity. In On Immunity, Eula Biss writes, I have no doubts that we can vaccinate away our prejudices or wash our hands of them. There will always be diseases against which we cannot protect ourselves and those diseases will always tempt us to project our fears on other people. But I still believe there are reasons to vaccinate that transcend medicine. She says by refusing immunity as a form of civil disobedience bears an unsettling resemblance to the very structure of the Occupy movement seeks to disrupt. Privileged 1% are sheltered from the risk while they draw upon the resources from the other 99%. Interestingly, this book also offers readers some creative meditations on fear from a selection of world-class writers, such as Voltaire's Candide, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and Susan Sontag, AIDS and its metaphors. Well, a few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of talking to Eula about our fears and just how dear they are to us. I first asked Eula why she began the book with the myth of Alcalis. That decision came after I'd written much of the book. I knew what was going to be said by then, by the time I chose to start with Achilles. But that myth, I I was kind of searching my memory for stories that I had heard about this urgency that that mothers feel to protect their children. Because I I had a certainty, I knew that this was an old urgency, that it's it's not new. And um, and at first I was thinking of fairy tales. But then I reached a little further back um, and landed on the myth of Achilles, which there's many ways that myth can be read and many ways it can be interpreted. But to me, it really spoke to this almost irrational urgency that the parent feels to protect the child. And, and in this case, the mother, Thetis, is immortal, but she's given birth to a mortal child. And his mortality is is driving her mad, almost. She wants more than anything to make him immortal. But that isn't what he is. And I think there was also something in this story, this idea of the fatal flaw. So Achilles has this one point in his body that is um, vulnerable to injury. He, He can't be hurt other than on his heel. But that's how he dies in battle. You know, mysteriously, a poisoned arrow hits him in exactly the place where he's vulnerable. And I think that this is, it echoes a contemporary fear. Many of us, and by us I mean well-fed, well-educated, middle, upper-class people, feel in many ways invulnerable to the things that afflict other people. And I think that that actually, instead of making us feel confident and strong and able to help other people and in a good position to serve other people, 
it seems to focus all our fears on on the places in which we remain vulnerable. And so we can we can put it what I think is a disproportionate amount of anxiety towards things like uh, diseases that can't be prevented or pollution that can't be avoided and and things like that. So I wanted to to start with that kind of double-edged sword um, to to open the problems that this this book is looking at. Yula, do you think we have an obligation to maintain the health of people all around us? And part of that obligation is the possibility of inoculation. Yeah, I, I do. And I put quite a bit of thought into that during the course of writing this book. I've thought into this question of what do we owe the people around us? I think once I reflected on how very dependent my health was and is, to the people around me and the decisions they're making, I determined that I, I owe the favor back. I think that we're, we're all of us dependent on other people um, and the decisions they're making. And sometimes we need to make collective decisions around health. I also believe that many of us are born already bearing a debt to the people around us. So one example of this, and this is just one small example, but it has to do with vaccination, is that in the U.S., we vaccinate all children against uh, rubella. And rubella is, doesn't tend to be um, a terribly dangerous disease for, for children or adults. The reason we, we do mass vaccination against rubella is because rubella is very dangerous to unborn babies. So what we're doing with this mass vaccination strategy is we're taking rubella out of circulation in the population. And we're doing that for one very vulnerable group. We're doing that for unborn babies. Because if a pregnant mother is exposed to rubella, her unborn child has a very, very high chance of developing abnormalities, being born with birth defects, some of them very serious. And so every baby that's born in this country who um, has not been affected by rubella and is not born with those birth defects already owes a debt to society, already owes a debt to all those people who accepted a vaccination for rubella in order to create a safer environment for unborn babies. And that's just one example, but there's many ways in which the health that we enjoy is produced by the people around us. And I think of it as, I use a lot of um, financial metaphors in my book, and I think of it almost as a kind of credit system or a, or a system of banking. We draw from this bank when we need to, but therefore we should also make contributions to this bank. We should we should make deposits as well. Do you think that we can actually have clear, rational, objective conversations on issues related to healthcare and how we structure our healthcare, how we inoculate, how we protect ourselves or not? Or do you think that we are so entrenched with fears, you know, with lack of trust, that we somehow have got lost in all the information in some way? Yeah, well, I do think it's a difficult conversation for those reasons and because it's a tangled conversation. It's so many things involved uh, when we talk about issues around health, yeah, we're touching our own prejudices, and, and some of those are are even racial prejudices, and, and there's been interesting study done on the intersection between 
people's fears about their health and their fears around people who are different than them. So there's that whole area of psychology. And then there's all these political areas, too. There's issues of, of access to health care. There's issues of corruption, especially around pharmaceutical companies. And, and people have concerns over who is who's profiting from medical care and who is who's not profiting. And I think all of that makes it's very difficult to have the kind of conversation you're talking about, though I don't think it's impossible. I think it just has to be a long and careful conversation in which the issues are, are parsed. So what I found when I first started thinking very deeply into this issue of vaccination, I found that I was piling a lot of associated subjects into this area and, and confusing myself and that's part of why my book has the structure it has. It's split into 30 short sections. And in each section, I try to look at just one place, one part of the question. And that was my strategy for trying to be a little more clear-headed about this. Instead of thinking about all these issues at once and, and confusing myself and being caught in the, the confusion of a kind of loose association that happens around the subject. I wanted to try to clarify it one point at a time for myself. And you say our fears are dear to us, that in some way we identify with them and we attach ourselves to fear, distrust of the information we're getting of our healthcare providers, pharmaceutical companies. You even broaden it out to kind of a stance on capitalism. Can you Mm -hmm. talk me through that? Sure, yeah, and I'll start with the the first part of what you were saying, you know, our fears are dear to us. I I do think that fear seems to be a surprisingly essential component to identity. Um, And and what I mean by that is is people begin to identify with their fears and also identify with other people who share their fears. I noticed this once. I was talking to a group of students, and we were talking about certain fears the students had of of urban areas. And I'm not from an urban place. And and when I first moved to New York City, um, there were things I wasn't afraid of, in part because I had never lived in an environment like that. I'd never been taught to be afraid of certain things. And my students were angry with me when they heard this. They couldn't believe that there were were situations in the city, like, like the situation of walking down a deserted alley at night. That was nothing that would have scared me when I first moved to New York City, because I hadn't been taught that that was a situation to be scared of. But it was very upsetting to these students to hear that. They were offended that that something that scared them had not scared me. And a few of them said outright, we don't believe you. We think you're lying. It, It was very important for them to believe that their fears were universally shared and that their fears were not a product of their their upbringing or their environment or their learning, but that their fears came from some essential and and non-negotiable place, that their fears were not invented. And Yula, you could look at that in some ways like a chronic condition because it's a stifling, it's as restrictive and it's so limiting in so many different ways. It is, and I think it becomes socially oppressive. That's a low-stakes example of, you know, it offended other people that I didn't share their fears. But this happens in all kinds of social situations where we, we unify ourselves, that we, we join forces with people who share our fears, and to some extent we ostracize people who don't share our fears, and, and we create social barriers around fear. And 
you know, connecting this back to your question about capitalism, which I think is very interesting and, and one of the more interesting angles in this whole debate, there are also people who identify very strongly as anti-capitalist, which I have to say I respect and admire. And I think that we, meaning all of us who live within capitalist systems, need that and we need people who are actively resisting capitalism, and we need people who are actively questioning capitalism. And healthy scepticism is important to have, but where that touches on irrationality, that's where it all goes so pear-shaped. Exactly, yeah. And sometimes there can be a fine line between scepticism and paranoia. And I've seen that around this skepticism of capitalism, which I do think that in many regards is a healthy skepticism and a necessary one. But it can also become a kind of black hole that sucks everything around it in so that anything produced within a capitalist system becomes suspect. And that means everything becomes suspect when you live in a country like the United States, for instance. And I think that one of the things that gets lost is that one can use the products of capitalism to ends that are not capitalistic in their ethos. And to make that less abstract, I think that vaccination is actually a very good example of this. This is a system, mass vaccination is a system that is counter to many of the principles at work in capitalism. In capitalism, the vast majority of people living and working within the system do not reap the benefits of that system. Now, Eula, you talk about the sanctimonious parents, the white middle-class parents, and that you show, your research shows that the more educated you are, the more wealthy you are, the more likely you will object to vaccinating your children. Now, for some people, they will find that patronising. But what do you say to, to people who would put it back to you that as a parent, we have... We have the responsibility to choose the destiny or the medical destiny of our children. And they would argue that there is so much disinformation out there that you're better doing nothing rather than taking some risk, that it's safer to do nothing. Well, either way, you're taking a risk. So there's risks involved with vaccinating and there's risks involved with not vaccinating. I think the illusion in doing nothing is that you're escaping risk. That really isn't the case. It isn't the case statistically and especially now in in this country, now that more people are not vaccinating, the risks of not vaccinating are becoming greater. So the more people who don't do it, the greater the risk. Um, But it reminds me of Benjamin Franklin wrote something. He he had been against variolation, uh, against smallpox. This predated vaccination. It was a very um, controversial procedure in, in both Great Britain and in the United States. And Benjamin Franklin had been against variolation, which is where young children are intentionally infected with smallpox, a mild case of smallpox, to protect them against the much more deadly strain of smallpox that that would be likely to kill them. Variolation was very dangerous, much more dangerous than vaccination. There was a 1% death rate for variolation. There was a 30% death rate for smallpox, so the odds were still better, but it was a very dangerous procedure, and Ben Franklin spoke out against it. And part of the reason he spoke out against it is he felt that if he variolated his child and his child died, he would never forgive himself. He would be overwhelmed by guilt. He then lost a young child to smallpox. He lost a four-year-old to smallpox. 
And he said that he almost couldn't bear the guilt of having not variolated this child. And that's why he, he spoke out about it. And he said, I've changed my position because I've now discovered that either way you're likely to feel unbearable guilt. And better than to go with the procedure that, that bears the lesser risk than to let, leave it to chance and feel in the future after you've lost a child this, this crushing guilt that there was something you could have done to prevent that. I, I just think that that speaks in some ways, to the the fact that there's no escape here. You know, there are things that are up to chance and that, that are not our choice, and we may feel bad about our choices either way. So I think that what pushes me towards vaccination is feeling like it's it's a system that contributes to the health of others, and it's part of my duty as a citizen. Now, your own birthing experience, I know, was pretty difficult. And you write beautifully on how becoming a parent, you learn to experience how powerful you were as a parent, but also how powerless you were. Yeah. Well, part of this has to do with the parenting culture of the moment, which I I think is a very fearful culture. But also part of it is that the fears that, you know, are, are old enough to be recorded in the myths of Achilles, fear that, that comes with having a wholly dependent being who is quite fragile initially and unable to speak for itself or make decisions for itself. For me, that, that was quite anxiety-producing. I, I worried about every decision I made for my child because the, the responsibility seemed so tremendous to me. So, you know, what I fed my child, what came into contact with his body, everything kind of took on a, an aura of importance that in some ways I think needs to be tempered by practicality. It's, it, I think that it can be crazy-making to really allow yourself to fall deep into that well of anxiety that can come with with new motherhood, new parenthood. And you can um, become overwhelmed with all the information out there on the do's and don'ts. Do you think that we have just developed one massive myth on immunity Mm -hmm. and we've overlooked possibly the fact that we can lose our immunity also? Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And, And I think we have a tendency to want to believe we can control things we can't control. And I think that that's what's crazy making about new parenthood is you simultaneously want to control everything for your child and are daily reminded that you can't. And I think that it is, it's healthy and good for us to live with an understanding that there are things we can't control, things that are outside our powers. Now, Yule, you touch on some of the iconic female intellectuals in American history, mm-hmm. certainly Rachel Carson, the environmentalist, mm-hmm. whose book, Silent Spring has to be one of the most groundbreaking books written in the 20th century on the environmental movement. Susan Sontag's work on metaphor. Can you talk me through why you use these two particular ladies' work? They're both writers who I find fascinating. And I started working first with Sontag and I returned to her. I had read Illness as Metaphor in college many years ago. And as soon as I started writing on this subject... I began to think, what would Susan Sontag say about this? So I returned to Illness's Metaphor and was reminded of how exciting the ideas in that book are 
even if you don't agree with the ideas in that book, at its core, it, it's doing something that I found so unusual and brilliant the first time I read it, which is instead of thinking through and with metaphor the way that most of us do, because metaphor is a major tool for thought, it's a necessary tool for thought, Sondag pauses and thinks about the metaphors that we all have been thinking with and asks, how are the metaphors we're using in order to think changing the way we think? And that was, to me, a really thrilling, compelling idea when I first encountered it, and an idea that has, has never ceased to be interesting to me. So quite a bit of what I'm doing in this book is trying to think about the metaphors we use around vaccination and, and immunity, and how those metaphors might color our, our thinking and our choices. Later, when I read Sontag's essay, uh, AIDS and its Metaphors, I found that even more riveting. It's, it's For me, I think it's the more powerful of these two essays that are often grouped together, illness's metaphor and then AIDS and its metaphors, in part because it, it touches on ideas and attitudes that I saw in my lifetime. And it was powerful for me to see there some ideas about AIDS and prejudices about AIDS that I had grown up with and to see her counter them quite beautifully. And so that's why I was drawn to Sontag, and I, I do quote her quite a bit, and I think of this book as a kind of conversation with her. And then Rachel Carson, compelling writer for me, in part because, as you said, her, her book Silent Spring affected so much change. And I, when I reread Silent Spring for my work on this book, I was interested in both what a good writer she is, but what a manipulative writer she is as well. And I admire her and, and think the work she did is, is beyond valuable. But, uh, but I also saw her manipulations on the page and had questions as a writer about whether the, the ends justified the means. And so that's part of what my conversation with Rachel Carson on the page is about. How do we talk about pressing issues? that have bearing on the health of many thousands of people? Should we distort information when we think it will be for the best? I guess I came out of that conversation with, with Carson feeling that, no, we, we can't do that. We actually do owe it to each other to work with, with good, strong information, even when we feel passionate and know that our cause is a just cause. And it all um, comes down to evidence and truth. Yes. And understanding yes. the importance of that. I was surprised that you brought up Bram Stoker's Dracula. That happened because I was researching the history of uh, the anti-vaccination movement in Great Britain in the 1850s into the, the turn of the century. And one of the things that came up in that research was that anti-vaccine activists during that Victorian period often used the vampire as a metaphor for the vaccinator. So the vaccinator was cast as, a, as an evil vampire who wanted to, to suck the blood of babies. And this piqued my interest. And uh, I had not read any Victorian vampire literature. It's, it was not an interest of mine in, until I read this. But I did begin reading into the vampire literature of that era, in part because I was curious to see whether I would find there a conversation about vaccination, um, whether I would find authors who were using the vampire to talk about public health. Indeed, I did find that Dracula by Bram Stoker is an interrogation of some of the issues around public health, although 
it is not a critique of vaccination. It's much more obviously portrait of our fears of disease. And Dracula himself is a metaphor for disease. And it's very much colored by the, the science of the moment in which it was written. So it was written not too long after germ theory was validated. And you can see Stoker using the language of germ theory, actually, in, in his writing. When the vampire hunters are pursuing Dracula and, and trying to prevent him from taking refuge in his coffin, they sterilize his coffin. That's the word, sterilize, that Bram Stoker uses. And that was Eulabis, On Immunity and Inoculation, is published by Fixcoraldo Editions and retails at about €12 Euros in paperback. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Now, before I head, I have a nice handy little competition for you. The good people at Books Ireland are giving one lucky Talking Books listener a chance to win a one-year subscription to Books Ireland. All you have to do is answer this quirky little question and email talkingbooks and newstalk.com. On his deathbed in 1900, someone or something was bothering Oscar Wilde. So fill in the blank of his final words. My blank and I are fighting a duel to death. One or other of us has to go. So all you have to do is email talkingbooks at newstalk.com. Best of luck. Well, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Burnock, who helped out with this week's show, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy and Paddy Dunhoo on sound. We've been talking books... I'd like to end this week's show with some insightful words from Eula Biss from her latest book on immunity and inoculation. If we extend the metaphor of the garden to our social body, we might imagine ourselves as a garden within a garden. The outer garden is no Eden and no rose garden either. It is as strange and various as the inner garden of our bodies, where we host fungi and viruses and bacteria of both good and bad dispositions. This garden is unbound and unkept, bearing both fruit and thorns. Perhaps we should call it a wilderness, or perhaps community is sufficient. However we choose to think about the social body, we are each other's environment. Immunity is a shared space, a garden we tend together. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.